Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, and please repeat after me, I do solemnly swear. We, the jury in the event entitled action, find the defendant guilty of the crime. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We all took the same oath of office. We are all bound by that common commitment to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? From Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. my name. You know, I feel very guarded about the whole situation. First of all, you have to remember for so many years, like, I couldn't even talk about it, not even with my child. You know, I had to just kind of keep everything so internalized that to, to some degree, it's really hard to talk about it. She feels like I should, because I don't think people realize that this could happen to them. You know, because if you talk to people, they're just, you know, like, oh, well, they must have done something, you know, because that doesn't happen to, to normal people. Like, that would never happen to me. Sometimes it doesn't even feel like it happened to us. It's like in another dimension or something. Like, you can't even, like, retrieve it as an actual, like, thing. And it's like, I don't know about for her, but for me, after that night, my whole life before then, feels like a dream. Like, I can't even access the person I was, the feelings I had, the thoughts I had about really anything. It's like it, get, it got locked behind, like, like a wall. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know how to describe it any better than that. You know, something horrible happened, and I made a phone call for help. And I didn't receive help. Hi, everyone. My name is Christina and I'm the lead producer on this season of Sworn. 
This episode is the first in a three-part series, a sort of culminating case study for the topics we've covered so far. This season of Sworn, we divided most of the episodes into topics instead of cases and looked at some of the problems and technicalities in the legal system, many of which come into play in this case. I really encourage you to take a listen through the first part of this season to learn more about the factors that we'll get into in these next three episodes. The reason you're hearing my voice right now, instead of Phil's, is that Phil is actually one of our subjects in this case. In 2009, Phil took on a case that would turn into one of the biggest and most impactful in his career as a defense attorney. When we were planning this season, talking about problems with the justice system, he recommended we cover this case right away. But since he was so close to it, being her defense attorney, we decided I would take the lead and see what I could find out about how the case impacted her, her family, and Phil himself. So for the next three episodes, we're going to dive into the details of that case, showing you what happened from start to finish. The woman Phil defended graciously agreed to share her story with us. But for the sake of her privacy and her children's privacy, we've changed her voice and removed any identifying information. That was her at the beginning of the episode, and she talked about making a call to get help. The night of the incident, she called 911, and things started to spiral from there. I'd like to play you some of that 911 call now. We've edited it for clarity and privacy, but I want to warn you, it's pretty graphic and kind of hard to listen to. I was having to argue with my husband. We were in my stepson's room, and he was listening to music. We were sitting there, and we were arguing, and he pointed his gun at me, and I tried to push it away from him, and he said, you don't want to do that. And the next thing I know, the gun went off. Okay, did you hear it go off? What? Did you hear the gun go off? I think my husband is... Yeah, Do you think that... He's making noise. He's making noise. Yes, I think his gun went off. There's blood everywhere. He was trying to shoot me, and I was fighting with the gun, and he said, you don't want to do that. And then the gun went off, and the next thing I know, my husband is covered in blood. Please, hurry. Okay, do you think this was accidental, or do you think he intentionally shot himself? I don't know. I know that she was angry. I'm going to close the door. We were both drinking, and we were talking, and I was talking on the phone with my friend, and he was in this room, and he was listening to YouTube songs, and I came Where's he bleeding from? He's bleeding from his head, which is please hurry. And they're on the way. I just need to let them know what's going on, okay? Okay, I'm sorry. The important thing is just to keep pressure it's, on It's them. everywhere, and my my 11-year-old daughter came to the door, and she said, is everything okay? And I closed the door on her. Would you please hurry? Okay, the officers are pulling up on the scene right now, okay? Okay. Okay, here? Are the, are the ambulance coming? Yes, ma'am. They're coming. Okay. The ambulance is coming. Goodbye. 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 I sat down with Phil's client and two of her children in Phil's office to hear about this horrific experience. You might hear some people walking around in the background. And one last note on privacy. We've beeped out her husband's name, the man who died. Is there something from the night of the incident that stands out the most? Yes. Was... 
I don't know the word. I don't want to say calm, but he was very agreeable. He was very just whatever, just kind of agreeable. Like, for instance, I had to go to the library to get their summer reading because I hadn't finished getting them their summer reading. And school was getting ready to start and I had to go to the grocery store. So I got all this stuff I had to do and I had to go pick up my paycheck. And so I was leaving the house with the kids to go pick up her and stuff. And was sitting on the living room floor with the Monopoly board game out and he was making the kids come play Monopoly with him. Which wasn't unusual except for the fact that he was adamant. That night, one of the kids won. Or more likely, her husband let them win. Nobody ever beat at Monopoly. Like, it was, like, unheard of, because he cheated terribly. Like, he just, he didn't beat your dad at Monopoly. Like, he'd find a way to win. (laughs) And so I was laughing, and it was like everything was kind of cool, you know? But he was just, there was, like, a just, like, an okayness. Like, he wasn't agitated. There was, like, nothing weird, which was almost a little bit abnormal, you know? Not that he was, you know, he wasn't a jerk or anything, but he just wasn't very chill and then um, he came to the back door and he said can you drive me to the quick trip and I said well I had a glass of wine I'm not gonna drive and he said oh okay and he closed the door so then I saw the headlights moving out of the driveway which made me mad because I used to repeatedly hide car keys from him so that he wouldn't drink and drive because he would tend to be somewhat self-destructive And then he was in the room and the door was locked because it locked from in there. And I knocked on the door and I said, do you want to come and sit with me because I'm going to go to bed soon? And he was like, yeah, I'll be right out. And I was like, okay. And I went and I checked my email, knocked on the door again. He unlocked the door and I walked in and he was listening to music and I saw the gun on on the desk and it wasn't supposed to be in the house. I was like, what is that doing in the house? I think I even made a joke, because the reason I went over to the computer was that if he didn't hurry up and come outside, that I was going to post songs on his YouTube that he hated. Like, joking around, you know? I saw the gun, and then he, he picked it up, and he did point it at me. I tried to get it away from him, and he said, you don't want to do that. Now, I think the police tried to turn that into, like, a threatening thing, but it was more like a, you don't want to piss me off kind of a a tone to it. And I let go. I sat down on what I remember to be a table, like, and I remember sitting down, and I remember covering my face because I was like, oh, God, he's going to kill me because I thought I had set him off to that point. I heard a clicking noise, and I moved my hands, and he had the gun pointed to his head. So I jumped up and I tried to pull it away from him and I heard a pop. I didn't even realize what had happened at first. I tried to pick him up and he he didn't move and then I was pulling on his arm and there was blood and apparently my screaming is what woke up some if not all of them, I don't really know. And I remember running around the house trying to find a phone, and I called 911. She she came in at some point, and I told her to go away and everybody to stay out because I didn't want them to see their father. They told me they were going to take me to the hospital. They took him, 
Finally, they came. It felt like an eternity. And they told me that they were going to take me to the hospital. Then they took me in a police car and they took me to the station, which I didn't understand. Then they told me they would take me to the hospital after. And then they wanted to talk to me. And um, it had some issues with the law throughout his life. And he always told me never to talk to the police. And so, honestly, I was afraid that he was going to get in trouble. So when they asked me what happened, I was like, oh, he's not going to want me to talk to them, you know? Do you remember what kind of questions the police asked you? I don't remember a lot of questions. I remember asking them questions more. I remember asking them where was when they were going to take me to but I don't really remember a lot of questions, but I also told them I didn't want to answer any questions because in that light of that situation, what could I tell the police that could harm my husband? Because for all I knew, he was coming home in a wheelchair. I have no idea at this point the extent of how my husband is. I know nothing. And so I was like, I really feel like I shouldn't talk to you. And I think I may have said without a lawyer or something like that. And really what I wanted to talk to was my father-in-law. That made them angry. And then they left. And then they came back. And they told me that I was gone. And then they told me that they were going to arrest me. And they, well, they took a bunch of naked pictures of me first, which was bizarre. Which I can't even remember if that was first or after, but they did take pictures of me. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand. Like, I thought I was supposed to go to the hospital. Everything just kind of happened. And then they took me into this room, and I just don't even, like, it. the whole thing feels like a dream state. I don't even know what time of day it was. Like, the whole day is just, like, a uh, bizarre fog. I just feel like I was in shock. Like, I don't even feel like, like you don't feel your legs. You're walking and you're just like, and sounds feel like they're in another world. Like, you, it's not real. Like, you can't even wrap your brain around what's happening. I think they said something like, you're under arrest. And I think I said, for what? And they said, murder. I mean, when they came and said that they were charging me, like, that was so shocking to me because I had been trying to save him from the minute I tried to take the gun from him from years before. I have hid the gun from him. I hid car keys from him. I poured $500 worth of pharmaceuticals down my garbage disposal. I poured bottles of Jim Beam off my patio. I mean, I spent years keeping this man alive for them and for me. That's what I did. And then calling an ambulance. I thought they were going to come and help him. I just kept telling him that I was there. I was there and I wasn't going to leave him. And then they took him from me. And he died alone. He died without me. And I wasn't there. And just everything from the, from the day I met him till the day I lost him 
was keeping him alive. Like, like it was just like, what? <laughs> like, are you insane? And like, you can see in that situation, when somebody says what happened, like so many things happened. You're like, I can't really answer that question. I guess from what I understand from what Phil told me, that I was giving conflicting answers and that I was standing and I was sitting or he was sitting or he was standing and we were fighting, but we weren't fighting. Well, like all of those things are true. And then it was like somehow, and I know this is sound weird, but it's almost like it didn't matter anymore. It was more like a witch hunt for me. They took me and I think they were laughing at me that if I remember correctly, because they had me in like paper suits and stuff. Cause they had taken all my clothes. The, I'm just talking about the police station. Like I said, it's like pretty foggy. I had no shoes. And I remember standing outside of the police car barefoot when they were bringing me to the jail. And then they took me in and then they, I guess what they call process me. They just put me in a room and I think I called my father-in-law and I couldn't call my dad because he was long distance. They took me to the infirmary and they put me in a room and it was flooded because I guess that the, I'm guessing that the inmates do it, but I don't know, but they stuffed the toilets till they overflow. And then they give you a pad to sleep on and they um, put you in a sort of straight jacket sort of thing. It's like a padded thing that you can wear. I was told later or at some point it was suicide watch. I mean, there was a girl in there that was singing to her baby. I mean, it was what I would imagine a psych ward would, would be like. Then they took me out of there, and then they took me and they put me in the regular, what they called general population. The girls were really nice to me in there. I was, you know, not never been to jail before. I didn't know what they were going to be like, and I pretty much just went in my cot. They were just real. They were really nice to me. They they were. I mean, I can't say anything. I guess I should say that the experience was horrifying. The experience of losing my family was horrifying. The jail was. They were. They were nice women. A lot of them were broken women that had been through some. I'm sure difficult trials in their life, you know, but they were, they were kind to me. My dad came and asked me what to do and I said to make sure that they were safe and then he sent me a couple of lawyers and I chose Phil. I think I understand that it was over 21 days that I was in jail. I think that's what they told me. I can't, I can't remember. I'm sorry. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Like I mentioned, Phil was brought on as her defense attorney early on while she was still in jail. In a series of interviews, I sat down with him and his staff to find out what her case looked like from the professional's point of view. We were long on problems and short on time. And we needed to go ahead and get her into court. We needed to get a hearing, uh, an evidentiary hearing. We needed to find out why the police were saying that she was guilty of murder. So we needed to test their evidence, if you will. We needed to get our heads wrapped around what the hell was going on with their case. Why did they charge her with murder so quickly? We had to file motions to get her into court. We also were interested in trying to get her out on bail. And we knew going into this, that that was a long shot. Quite frankly, I was not expecting to ever get her out, at least not on bond. But we did. In my opinion, they charged her so quickly because they misinterpreted the evidence that they found at the scene. You have two people and there's some type of an altercation and there's a gun involved. One person gets shot and dies. Police sometimes jump to conclusions and they get tunnel vision. And I think that's what they did here. They looked at this and they said, well, you know, there was a gun, somebody's dead and, you know, she's alive. Well, she must have killed him. This happened in close quarters, right? And she's not who you might expect would prevail in a physical altercation against him. And they, I think, misinterpreted the crime scene a little bit and felt like they were not close enough together when this altercation took place that maybe she had to be sort of across the room. But there was an initial police and EMS response that came in pretty quickly and changed some things around. By the time investigators got there to really try to truly process this scene, the gun that was involved had been moved. Of course, there was no body. He had gone off to the hospital for emergency room treatment. And so the scene had been 
manipulated, uh, not not in any malicious way, but it had been changed. It was not the way that it existed, you know, when it was just her there, when she's on the phone with 911, it was changed. And so I think they misinterpreted some things. They jumped to some conclusions, I think. And then they built their case around their misperceptions. I think that's the most charitable way I could put it. They had a, a victim and there was a gunshot entry wound on his left palm. There was an exit wound uh, out the back of his left hand. It's something you should ask Chris Robinson about. You might remember Chris Robinson from our earlier episode this season on bite marks and forensic science. In that episode, he went into the details of his work as a forensic consultant, including analyzing ballistics and gunshot residue, both of which come up in this case. So when Phil started assembling the defense, he brought Chris on to evaluate the crime scene and help determine whether or not his client's story of struggle and self-defense was likely or even possible. I believe the question was, the way that the individual was shot, how close the range of fire was, the angle of trajectory through the body of the bullet. I believe it went through his hand and then into his face. So as it went through his hand, there was a stippling on the hand a little bit, which is the bruising of the skin by the unburnt gunpowder particles. And then it went through the hand, and as it fragmented, there was stippling all over his face. Some of that was pseudo-stippling from the bones that went through the hand. Some of that could have been powder because it was very close to his face at the time. But the pictures, it was right there. It was evidence that the gun is, is up against the hand. As you, you see it right through the hand. And, and, and Philip was, he, he looked at me and he's like, are you serious? It's right there. Look, it's a stellate tear. Stellate is the star-shaped pattern. It's just a star-shaped pattern from the contact type of gunshot wound. That's caused by gas pressure. Bullets don't rip, bullets punch holes. When you see stellate tearing, that's an indication that most likely it was a contact shot, which means the muzzle of the gun was directly up against the hand, the skin. It was an interesting case. At the end of the day, Bill's question was, do you think it could have been an accident? Well, absolutely. If you're struggling over the weapon, you see, we showed that his hand was, was right on the gun, very close to the gun, and that there could have definitively been a struggle over the gun. We ran through it several dozen times, but he said, show me, how, how does the hand get in front of his face like it was? How does all this happen? And I said, well, it, it, it broke the bones as it went through, and then the, it went into the face, and the face had... It was severe trauma, but you could tell all these things. And the more we went over it, Philip was like, I, I totally, I mean, I can totally see where it was a self-defense kind of issue. The medical examiner told prosecutors that Phil's client had to have been far away and shot her husband from across the room. But what Chris found was the exact opposite. The stippling pattern, meaning how the gunshot residue hit his body, as well as the star-shaped bullet entry wound, prove that it was a shot where the gun was pressed against the skin. This describes what Phil's client told police and the 911 operator. She and her husband struggled up close before the gun went off.
the bottom line is that there was a struggle for control of a gun. So she walks into the room where he was, and there's this gun, and, you know, she's not a gun person, doesn't like guns, and, in fact, took a long time for me to be able to even try to reconstruct this using a, an unloaded weapon, and we, we did that. Eventually, we, we talked about it with Chris, and Chris and I were able to piece it all together once we got some photographs and some other evidence from the prosecutors. We were able to try to go in and, and test what she said on the 911 call. Could these things have actually happened? If he's right-handed and he's holding a gun and, and they're fighting over control of it, is it possible for what she said to the 911 operator you know, to have happened? And lo and behold, it was. In fact, if, if you're holding this particular gun and it was a Glock and you got your finger on the trigger and the person that you're pointing it at reaches out, which would be the natural thing to do is to reach out and sort of push it back or whatever. I remember back in my days in the police academy, we actually trained for how do you, what do you do when somebody's close to you and they point a gun at you? Well, one of the first things that you can do, if it's a revolver, you just take your, your hand and you clamp down over the top of the gun and you grab the cylinder of the revolver and they can't pull the trigger and it won't fire. So that's what you do with a revolver. But with an automatic weapon, or in this case, a semi-automatic handgun, the best thing to do defensively is to grab the end of the, the weapon, the barrel, the business end, and point it in another direction so that if they do pull the trigger, it's not coming right at you. That's sort of the instinctual thing that somebody's going to do. They're going to grab the end of that weapon and they're going to try to push one way or the other. And if the person who's holding that gun, if their finger is on the trigger, unless they move their finger out of the trigger, if you rotate the business end of that gun, just a few degrees either side, left or right, the finger is going to contract and your hand is going to cause your, your, tr your trigger finger basically to pull the trigger, even though it's an involuntary movement. Chris and I went through this and we, we tested this scenario and we never practiced this with a live round, of course, but using an unloaded Glock, you can do it. I've got one here and you can hear the click if you want to hear it. So you can hear it's, it's a real gun and it's unloaded. There's nothing in the chamber. I'm not pointing it at anybody, but I'm going to hold it out with my arm extended like I'm pointing it at someone. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my left hand. You push this barrel. What you'll hear is. And that's once I took the end of the weapon and I, I basically just pushed the barrel to, to, the, to the side. It caused my trigger finger to click. So we knew that it was plausible, if not probable, that she was telling the truth. This is something that nobody ever really thought about. They just said, well, she said he was pointing it at himself. He was pointing it at her. He was waving it around. You know, she, she can't get, make up her mind what the truth is, so she must be guilty. But the truth is, all those things were probably happening. The medical examiner came up with some kooky theory that uh, he must have been across the room because there was no stippling uh, on his hand. And he totally ignored the fact that it was a stellate entrance wound. I knew the medical examiner's uh, conclusions were bullshit, And I, I knew I was going to have to prove it. But I was able to figure out that he had had some problems. He was actually sanctioned by the state. His medical license, I don't think it was suspended, but it, I think he went into a probationary status because he was discipline for you know doing a bunch of sloppy autopsies a number of years before this and 
he had entered into a uh, an agreement where they wouldn't suspend his medical license, but he had to do a bunch of autopsies under some kind of supervision and a, in a probationary sort of a status. So I knew that this guy had problems, and I, I knew that. I'd known about it for a long time, and, and when I saw his bizarre conclusions, I thought to myself, you know, he may very well be at it again, and, and I need to get a, a sharp set of medical eyes on this. So we, we reached out to a doctor who used to be the chief medical examiner for the state of Kentucky. At the end of the day, he confirmed, and I'm going to read part of his report. He says, a tighter press contact gunshot wound will produce the exact same skin findings and facial markings as seen in this case. The only means to prove or disprove a tight contact wound is a careful dissection of the deeper injuries in the wound track. This was not done. This death is considered by me to be an undetermined manner of death. I favor accident as the result of a struggle between the two people over control of the weapon. There is no proof of homicide. This told me that all along, everything that I had thought and believed about this case, I felt vindicated personally, but that didn't do her a hell of a lot of good. She was still charged with murder. I knew we were on the right path, at least towards getting to the truth. Unfortunately, it took a long, long time and a lot of money and some good help from, from experts to, to get to the truth. We shouldn't be the ones having to prove this. The police should have gotten this right, but they didn't. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Caitlin, Phil's former paralegal. She worked with Phil on all aspects of this case. I was Phil's paralegal for about four years. I have since moved to North Georgia and am no longer working in law. I'm an optician now, but that probably doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, with this being five years ago, my mind is not as crystal clear as when everything was happening. So I would also just like to state, you know, I don't want to mislead and I don't want to miss say anything, but you know, my, my memories have, might've changed just a little bit. So he took on her case a little bit before I got there. So it was probably nine months, nine to 12 months underway when I joined Phil. You know, that was the, the biggest thing he had going at the time. So I immediately was brought to speed. It was very important. It carried a lot of weight. And at least to me, it was clear that she did not need to be charged criminally for anything. I know he was very heavily invested in their work, but also emotionally. And it was a very big time in both of our lives because he had this in front of him where she was potentially faced with a very, I mean, it was a very big charge. She could spend her life in prison. And he was just faced with making sure that didn't happen because we knew that didn't need to happen. As far as I know, I had access to everything. If Phil had access to it, I had access to it. So I knew she wasn't criminally guilty because I knew about her past and her relationship with him. Um, And I knew the story and I knew the evidence. You know, I learned so much about stippling and how bone fragments fracture when gunshots come in at certain angles. Every single piece of direct, circumstantial, any type of evidence just pointed to, I mean, it wasn't her. She She didn't do it. She was defending herself. I actually was going through discovery, gathering, compiling things for Phil, and stumbled upon the autopsy photos unexpectedly once. It was shocking. But then once I saw it, you know, and took a second and realized, okay, this is what I'm looking at, it really, it was intriguing. I mean, just everything pointed to the fact that she was not criminally responsible for anything. I met her and her four children. Um, I met her parents also. I mean, I'll never forget any of them. They're really great people. They're, she especially is just the type of person you don't forget. 
I say, I had friends, you know, I was newly out of college at the time, and I would have friends ask me, how can you defend criminals? And my mind always went to her. She isn't a criminal, but she's being charged like one. And the law can be very black and white sometimes, and you need criminal defense attorneys to protect people from being railroaded by the state. People need protecting from that. And she was a perfect example of someone who was not guilty, who could be charged with something, but is not guilty of a crime. Next time on Sworn. Oh, there was a laundry list of charges. Then they offered the plea, and I think that it was voluntary manslaughter. At first, I didn't want the plea. I was like, no, I'm not taking a plea. I was furious. And then he told me about the Alford plea. Sworn is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Our lead producer is Christina Dana. Executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright for Tenderfoot TV, Matt Frederick and Alex Williams for iHeartRadio, and myself, Philip Holloway. Additional production by Trevor Young, Mason Lindsay, Mike Rooney, Jamie Albright, and Hallie Beadall. Original music and sound design by Makeup and Vanity Set. Our theme song is Blood in the Water by Layup. Show art and design is by Trevor Eiler. Editing by Christina Dana. Mixing and mastering by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner. Special thanks to the team at iHeartRadio. From UTA, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer. Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group. Beck Media and Marketing and Station 16. I'd also like to extend a very personal and special thanks to all of our contributors and guests who have helped to make all of these episodes possible. You can find Sworn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sworn Podcast. And follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, on Twitter at PhilHollowayESQ. Our website is SwornPodcast.com, and you can check out other Tenderfoot TV podcasts at www.tenderfoot.tv. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at Sworn at Tenderfoot.tv or leave us a voicemail at 404-410-0441. As always, thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.